Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Thank you for joining us for another episode. We are winding the year down. Season two is coming to a close, and it's been a great year. I think on the last show, I'm actually going to do some compilation of the best moments of all of those shows. And so that's if I have time to actually do that, but that's the mindset of something that I want to do and I got to figure out how to do that on the last show of the season and then on the first show of season three is always me just kind of talking about what I learned during the past year and what I hope to see and hear and what I want to bring to you guys um, in the third year with different speakers and different content and all of that kind of good stuff. But today, I have the pleasure of talking to one of my brothers that um, I met when I first came to Atlanta. I have always been inspired by him, and now he's on the team, and we work side by side, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But I want to introduce you to Rodney Kellum, who is a man whose life has been profoundly shaped and enriched by his role as a father. Rodney is not just a dedicated husband to Crystal and a loving father to Randall, Robin, and Braylon. He's a beacon of inspiration with each of his children serving pivotal catalysts uh, for growth and transformation of his life. Rodney's unique path, which he aptly terms fatherpreneurship, showcases how he has passionately intertwined the essence of fatherhood into every aspect of his business and life. A former Division I basketball athlete and self-confessed reform workaholic, Rodney's journey has evolved to prioritize service to his community, to other fathers, and most importantly, to his own family. As a best-selling co-author, Rodney's narrative is one of strength, dedication, and transformation. His experience as a father to a special needs child who faces developmental delays due to several diagnoses has reshaped his worldview, compelling him to rise as a man of profound character and resolve. In in this deeply personal episode, we're going to talk about his experiences, his insights, offer some encouragement and wisdom to fellow fathers everywhere. So let's welcome Rodney Kellum to the show this morning. How you doing, sir? I'm wonderful. Man, this is a pleasure. I've been wanting to do this. I've been trying to figure out the best place um, to put the show. And I was like, you know what? Just do the show. Stop trying to worry about where you want to place it. um, Because there are folks out there that need to hear your testimony and hear your work. Rodney, when we start off our shows, we always start off with me asking the guests to tell their daddy story. They can tell it from the perspective of them being a dad or their relationship or non-relationship with their own dad. You could do one way or the other, or you can do both. So what's your daddy story? I'll start with the, the man who raised me, James Bailey, was a man who was not my biological father, but chose to love me. Uh, he said he adopted me when I was nine months old. He and my mother were high school sweethearts. They had spent some time apart. And my mother said to him, I had a baby for us. 
<laughs> and uh, I'll fast forward to know that my dad was a very special man because almost all except for two of the six children he raised were biologically his. So only two were biologically his. I was the first that he adopted. And because of him, I got the got to see what it looks like for a man to choose to love. And if it wasn't for his example, I didn't know that the term adoption applied to me until I was 35 years old. Even though I knew he wasn't my biological father, I heard a sermon on the Roman, Roman idea of adoption. And I said, that was me. Because in the Roman idea of adoption, if you adopt a child, you have no way to disown them. You can disown your own biological children, but your adopted children, you can never disown. So I, I realized that was my dad and his love for me. And uh, all my life, I just took that example and put that into my children. And my children have saved and changed my life in their own individual way and collectively. Starting with Randall, who saved me from workaholism. My daughter, Robin, who uh, really redirected me in the path that I was always going down into my health. She got me to change my, my habits, my eating habits, my mindset about food, because I learned that food was emotional. And my youngest son, Braylon, who looks most like me, look like me, act <laughs> like me, uh, on how to love myself. Because by loving him, who looks just like me, I realized, man, I don't love myself right. So mm. they've all changed and saved my life uh, in dramatic ways, dramatic, drastic ways. Wow. You know, it's interesting how you frame the word adoption. I know you've heard um, when folks are trying to translate English words into other languages, mm -hmm. you'll hear other cultures say, we have no words for that, yeah. right? It's interesting that when you say, when you, when you frame what adoption means, that there will be other cultures. And if you kind of think about it in our own culture, our African-American culture, where we always talk about the village and the community. And I think about my own grandmother and her sister um, being taken in by our cousins. Um, and being placed on the census and all of those kinds of good things, um, they weren't listed on the census as adopted. They were listed in the census as children. And so when you talk about the word adoption, that is really a new developed name to describe more the system than the reality of what's actually taking place because true community understands the responsibility of taking in children and being responsible for children and committing and being developed for children. I think we might be one of the only cultures that will call people our cousins who aren't biological cousins, call people our uncle who weren't biological uncles, our papa, you know, all those kinds of things. It is because we have no defining, you know, paradigm or, or, or guidelines around who and what is family. So thanks for sharing that. That was, uh, eye-opening to me. I got to figure out how I filter that, you know, into my conversation now. But when you think about yourself, you know, as a dad and think about all of those things that you've learned, you know, what we know about fatherhood is that it is a journey and that we are always um, seeking for a better self and always struggling with things, even when we're not showing that we may be struggling with things. In your life today, when you think about how far you've come, like, what are the things with respect to being a father that you are still challenged with? Oh, 
So one of the one of the biggest challenges is still getting away from the some of the bad examples I had growing up. Mm. So my mom had a PhD in cosology, even though I don't cuss. Uh, <laughs> she had a PhD in cosology, and her her fuss you outs and her you know her talking tos were worse than any spanking I could ever get. And I I'm being I become better and more cognizant of how I say things and what I say, because both of those things matter. Um, and now with, with Braylon, my youngest one, who's seven, I remember when, when I'm starting to rear up and get upset, I remember how it felt because I'm looking at myself and it really makes me pause and put a filter. So even though that's a struggle, that my youngest son has really made that more, like having a daughter, I can't yell at her at all. Like, it's just not at me. But my oldest son, you know, he got the, the youngest version of me that definitely needed to learn some lessons. So the struggle has been have gotten better from child one, two, and three. But that's still something that the old examples still rise up in me. But the children have given me a filter to say, okay, who are you talking to? They're, they're little versions of you. How did you feel? Mm. And those things, like taking pauses, like, Point two seconds to say, okay, wait a minute, is that the right way to say it? That's still a daily struggle in my mind every day. Yeah, no, uh, you are somebody with many passions, and I love um, people with many passions, and so you can never kind of tell singularly um, what they're passionate about at any moment. But you also see at the same time that their passions are connected. Like I can see every element of your passion in everything that you do. Um, you were a division one basketball player, right? And one may say, what does that have to do with fatherhood? But I know what it has to do. I'm watching you. I see it. I see it play itself out. But when you connect those things, what did you learn in that space that now serves you in the space of working specifically with fathers? The hardest thing that you ever face only prepares you for the next hardest thing you'll ever face. I remember going through those, I mean, I can't tell too many stories, but <laughs> going through two a days, uh, my college coach, who I don't know if I want to say his name because I didn't talk to him first, but going through those two a days and more than two a days sometimes helped me realize that I could push past my, what I thought was my mental limits and my physical limits. And at that time in my life, my freshman, sophomore, junior years, those, that was the hardest thing I'd ever faced. Like, I didn't know I could do that kind of work, that kind of physical work. You know, I can, I can push through that kind of mental blockage. And every time I faced something new that was the hardest thing in my life, I said, man, I made it through that. Then I can get through this. Including losing my mother during my college years, the summer before my senior year. Like, man, I made it through, I made it through my, my college coaches' practices. I made it through playing for him. Man, I could do it. I could do it. And so you relate that to fatherhood. And man, the many, many challenges I've had in my journey of fatherhood. I always look back and say, man, that was the hardest thing in my life. And all it did was prepare me mentally, spiritually to say, okay, I can make it through it because I've made it through this, 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 and that. And the, the list is long of what I've been through but only makes you mentally tougher because there's always the next challenge. Mm -hmm. 
fatherhood preneur. That's a interesting uh, term. Yeah. Explain it and where it came from. The fatherpreneur term came when I was sleeping on the bench inside of Hartsfield Jackson Airport because at that time in my life, when my aunt had passed away, she was a very dear aunt to me. Um, I didn't have enough money to buy a plane ticket, so I had to fly standby. And because I was standby, and if it was in Las Vegas where my family lives, as a very hot destination, I didn't get a seat that the day I needed to go to make it to her funeral. And I remember laying there that night, thinking about my children, thinking about my family in Vegas, that I was gonna be late, I was gonna make the service, but I had to get there. I said, Rodney, there's, there's no way that now and going forward, whatever my family needs, whatever my children need, whatever my family in Vegas needs, wherever my family is, I felt this shame that I couldn't do what I needed to do to be there for my family. And that was one of the defining moments that said, my family is my business, my fatherhood is my business. Mm. And the term fatherpreneur came along and, and that which also coincides because with my story with Randall, the two things really marry each other and it culminated in that time on the bench. That my time with Randall when he was a baby, I was a workaholic, I would work two and three jobs. I would leave when it was dark in the morning, come home, it was dark, dark, you know, dark outside. And I'd missed a whole day of his development. Mm. So, did he say anything today? Did he roll over today? Did he say his first words? Did he, did he take his first steps? And I had to get my reports from other people. So, and, and they literally, that job in my time, I thought was my dream job. And I ended up almost li physically, literally dying because my left artery started to close because I was working so much and I would give them so much of my energy and time. I ended up walk, you know, moving away from that job because they made me choose between Randall and what I thought was my dream job. So you take that experience, combine that with sleeping on a bench in an airport, not having the money, not, not having the right mindset to create the money in the life I needed. And I said, that was enough. And then I made fatherhood my business. So it, it, it goes through everything that I do. If it doesn't allow me to be there to speak life, give life to those that give me life back, which is my family, it's not for me. And when I used to work in the broadcasting world, having Randall really shifted my mindset. It caused me to stop taking the 24 seven, 365 jobs, weekends, night shifts, to look for things that only matched up, that allowed me to be there in the morning, noon, night, whenever appointment was happening, uh, need to go to the school, he's not feeling well. I needed that flexibility. So everything started to line up and my mindset started to shift where I said, I'm not gonna pursue those, those opportunities. Even though they look like gold, it's not worth it. And I said, when I was, um, when I almost died with the artery and I was being wheeled through uh, the hospital, everybody's shaking their head at me. So I was like early, mid twenties at the time. They kept saying, why are you here? You're so young, you're so young. Turn a corner, you're so young, you're so young. And they're doing a heart catheter to check out what was going on with my, my artery. And I had the realization, I said, if I would have died at that time, all that I would have left my family, which was my wife and Randall at the time, was my wife with memories and my tombstone would have said he was a hard worker. And Randall mm -hmm. wouldn't remember me at that time because he was so young. I said, is this worth it? And it absolutely wasn't. So Father Pernod came along because of my son Randall, 
fatherpreneurship and that bench moment in Hartsville Jackson Airport here in Atlanta saying that that's, that's enough for me. This doesn't work. I got to do something different. And so you have another, you know, because our conversation is going to be in layers because I really want people to kind of understand that people's lives aren't linear, right? They're not just this happens, this happens, this happens. It's that it's layered and like this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens, right? But you're, you still have to move linear, but you're moving linear with layers, right? And so you have a child with special needs. And the interesting thing is I wasn't really aware of um, how dads were impacted by having a child with special needs and how they um, framed it in their own minds. A good friend of mine from New York, haven't spoken to Charles in a while. I need to reach out to that brother, good brother, see how he's doing. Charles Jones, he was a um, documentarian, filmmaker, um, highly respected, you know, doing a lot of great things. But he did a documentary called Autistic Like Me. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember the premiere of that documentary, I was with him and we were going around and he was doing some video work for myself. And we had a lot of intimate conversations about how he was struggling with what his mind was telling him separate from what his heart was saying to him. And what he described to me was, he said, you know, I grew up being that guy who um, always wanted a son, right? Always wanted a son because I wanted to see him you know, be a basketball player, be a football player, be all these things. You have all these aspirations um, where these guys who want sons, particularly first sons, like I was never that person, but I understood it, right? And he said, and he got the news that he was having a boy and he was happy and he was couldn't wait to like get started being a father of a boy so he could pour into all these things and all his talents. And then he learns that his child has autism. And somehow in his mind, he began to say him, to himself, all those things I dreamt mm. for my boy will now never come to um, reality. And he struggled with how could he think that way? Like, this is my son, like, how dare you know, I put my own aspirations and dreams on the capabilities of my son and not being able to meet or match what my expectation was, but now have to change that expectation. And he struggled with that. And as a result of that, he did the documentary to really talk about that. And I thought that was brave. That was the first time I've ever seen a man talk about that with such transparency. When you look at your own journey, was that similar to you, different to you, or is there a different explanation to that than I realize? It, it is absolutely real. And I wanna, I wanna take a point and begin with that point about wanting a son first. So in my family's history, the men usually have daughters first or only, and the women have sons first or only. So when my wife got pregnant, um, after the doctor said we couldn't have children, by the way, without help, and we didn't need no help, 
um, I, in my mindset, I was about to have a daughter first. Now I am extremely overprotective of all the young ladies in my life, all the girls in my life, and I have a plenty of goddaughters. So I know how much that protective nature was with them. I said, oh my Lord, oh, I'm gonna have to, you have to help me with having a daughter first. And so we found out we were having a son first and that really did calm me down. And it calmed me down not so much that I wanted my own basketball player or football player, is that if I ever did have a daughter, I knew I had another protector. That's where my mind was. And so when my daughter came along, I just thought about all the wonderful things my mother was to me and the things that she accomplished, my wife, who she is to me, what she's accomplished. And I, I completely, my dreams went so big for her. I said, man, she's gonna sing like her grandmother. She's named after her grandmother, Robin. Man, she's gonna do that. Her mother a, has a math degree and a nursing degree. Man, she's gonna be super intelligent. Uh, she's gonna be tall like my mom and her, you know, you start thinking all these things. And when, when her, we, she got seven months old, um, she started showing the signs of what's called infantile spasms. My wife is an RN, she noticed something was wrong. And we go to the doctor, they don't have any answers as to why she's having them, but they, they say, you know, this is what's happening. Her brain is doing this. And the frustration of why not giving answers, we ended up going the natural route. She got healed from the infantile spasms, but because of the spasms, she developed uh, intellectual disabilities. So she had developed, she had and has developmental delay, which means she's spoken before, but only once. So she's still working on her words and she's working on some other skills that most children her age have that she hasn't gotten yet. But what that did was on that journey, especially the healing journey, I felt tremendously guilty that what I put into my family's bodies and the atmosphere I created, I felt like it was my fault. And I, I want to pause this moment to really encourage other men that have children with special needs to tell your story because being in the space and going to conferences, you know, autism conferences, women are speaking about their story, but men absolutely need to tell the story. So I'll continue. Feeling guilty and trying to figure out what the solution is because men were solutionists. And I talk about this when I talk uh, to, in conferences. I got to a place where I couldn't take it anymore. The, the emotional feeling guilty, the emotions of I'm her father, I'm supposed to protect her. What do I do, God? I've done everything that I know. I've talked to the doctors that have degrees and are specialists at the biggest hospitals in Atlanta. They specialize in brains and, and fixing them and they can't fix it. They don't have answers. What do I do? We were in a doctor's appointment in Atlanta and it just was overwhelming to me. Mm. And I, tears started coming down my face and I said, God, I can't take it. I'm saying this out loud now. I can't take this, this is too much for me. And in that moment, there was a nurse who was at the front desk who it was her last day of working as a nurse. She was retiring. And Randall was with us at that appointment. So she brings this big toy plane. There was a, a movie that came out at the time called Planes. It was a, mm -hmm. a, in the Cars universe. And she gave him this big, huge toy plane. And in that moment, that, that gesture of kindness broke my, woe is me, I can't take it no more. And I said, in this moment, this woman still took the time to show some compassion and some love and some care. When on her last day, she could be like, man, forget all y'all, it's my last day, I don't care, I'm out. Mm -hmm. 
And it reminded me that just like in the, with the game of basketball, the, the hardest thing I've ever been through, there's gonna be a next hardest thing I've ever been through. So I got through that moment and that, that moment propelled us down the natural path to get my daughter healed from the spasms. But these, these moments taught me that I always have a very optimistic view and my optimism became a point of my frustration because I believe, well, my daughter's gonna be fine now. We're gonna find the right medication dosage now. She's gonna speak now. She's gonna be potty trained now. That's how I believe. But what I realized was putting my expectations on her time frame caused my breakdowns. Mm. As she went through all these moments of going to what I call the electric braids, which are EEGs and getting tested and, and getting shots in her legs and we had to put steroids in her legs at the same time, she still found a way to smile with a joyous smile. Mm -hmm. And that always brought me back to, man, if my, if my daughter going through all this can still smile, I gotta get it together. Cause she still has joy and I need to have it too. So she helped me in the moment. And my recent conversation with my wife was, we're, we're expecting Robin's healing from her delays and, and issues and diagnosis. But through this journey, she's healing me. She's shifting my mindset about what's supposed to happen now and how I expect things and being so impatient and so frustrated. I've become so much more of a patient person. I've become so much more of an understanding person. I become so much better of a communicator because she doesn't use her words. Learning sign language, learning to be patient when people can't get their words together. Because I used to be a real pet peeve of mine where people would sit there and go, um, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. I'd be like, man, just talk. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's like, man, he might have an intellectual disability. He might not, not have had a good teacher. So my daughter through this journey is healing me. When I'm trying to focus on getting her healed, I'm becoming better, a better man, a better father, and a better husband. Well, you know, it, is, it's, it speaks to you said one thing that I want to um, build on, and you said, um, you know, that your wife was a nurse and she recognized. And, you know, part of this responsible fatherhood work, you know, about this notion of presence looms larger than anything else because when you're not present regardless of what the romantic situation is your economic situation your residential situation that being present feeds you with some information that you would not have or not obtain in your absence right and so there are more reasons to want to be with your children just other than the sake of, I want to be with my child, or I deserve to be with my child, or it is my right to be with my child. And those are the stories, to your point, that men have to begin to start elevating when they are standing in front of a judge, yeah. and a judge is asking them, why do you want custody of your child? And it can't be, I just want to spend time with them. It has to be because presence matters, right? And the presence of two 
um, loving parents matter even more. For those dads out there who may be in or out of relationship that may not have the um, pleasure of having that level of expertise in the house, like how do they see their children and what can they be looking at as signs to their children may have some level of special needs that needs to be addressed? Man, one, the first thing you have to do though is decide to be present and engaged. And I have, when I do talks on fatherhood, I say, what's the most important part of the house? And people walk in, talk about the kitchen, talk about designs, but the foundation is the most important part of the house. And being present and engaged as a father, whether you're married to, with, living with the mother or not, being present and engaged in that child's life makes you a foundational father. And your presence and engagement is necessary to building the best version of the people that we've created. So when you, when you have a child with special needs or you suspect you may have a child with special needs, the most important thing would be remove your expectations of what the child should be. Like we talked about raising a basketball player, athlete or a gifted, like my daughter wanted her to be a singer and sing praise and worship. Remove your expectations and just listen. Look, pay attention. Start asking questions of, of people who have expertise. Talk to the guidance counselor. Talk to your, your pediatrician. Hey, you know, my child doesn't look at me in the eyes when I talk to them. Is that normal? You know what? Let's go get an evaluation. My child isn't swallowing properly. And I've learned all these things because of what my daughter missed out on during her develop, early developmental years. Mm -hmm. And we really didn't notice, notice what she missed out on until Braylon came along and was doing all these things and these milestones that we just didn't know she wasn't doing. Like, our, she's not crawling like normal, normal children. She's not walking. She feels really flopsy. She's very, you know, stretchy and flexible. And we didn't know that low tone was a part of, sometimes a part of developmental delay. And all these things, these little signs, if you have that, that inkling like, eh, that's not quite normal, don't ignore that. And another big hurdle that my wife and I had to get over was the idea that if we go get these diagnoses, that she'll be labeled and she'll miss out on the things that she needs. And the opposite is true. Getting the diagnosis, getting the help, opens up doors for help and helping your child get on track sooner than later. The, one of the very heartbreaking things that I see in a world of parents with children with special needs is how many parents don't push past what's, what's one specialist tells them or accept where their child is. That's the best that they could ever be. And there's a wide range of what a special needs child is mm -hmm. from spina bifida to cerebral palsy, to autism, to ADHD, to dyslexia. It, it, it's a wide range. But what my, I'm thankful my wife and I both agreed is that when Robin got the diagnosis of developmental delay or infantile spasms and in, in developmental delay, the, the specialists all said that she wasn't supposed to walk, talk, run, jump, climb until she was around 11 or 12 years old. 
Well, round three, Robin said her first two words, even though she hasn't spoken since then. She's nine years old now. She runs, jumps, hops, climbs, dances every day. Um, she communicates with signs. She has great receptive language, even though she doesn't use words to speak right now. She can read, she recognizes things, symbols and words, sentences. And if we had accepted, you know what? Oh, she's a special needs. Oh, well, put her in a home. That happens all too often. Mm. And, I, and people are scared of the journey. People take the, they think is the shame that people looking at your child, staring at your child is too much to handle. And I'm here to tell you, we take our daughter everywhere. And when people start looking and asking, we answer their questions lovingly, caringly. Oh, this is my daughter, Robin. She has, she has developmental delay, but she's my beauty pie. She can, she can do this, 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 and this. And conversations like that automatically, you can see like light bulbs go off in people's heads. Oh, someone with special needs can be celebrated. Oh, they're not in danger. Oh, I don't have to be scared that they're gonna do something to me. Because just like everything that's new to somebody, there's a level of fear because they don't have education behind it. Mm -hmm. So loving your children with special needs in public helps the community become people that have more understanding of people with special needs and families with special needs. Mm -hmm. Is there, have you, um, in your experience and not only with your own child and children and family um, and being in close proximity to others, um, have you seen a cultural nuance? And what I mean, what I mean by that is particularly as it relates to um, African-American families and other cultures, is there a nuance that we see and deal with our children with special needs differently than other cultures? Yeah, it goes, it goes back to that labeling thing. We don't want to be labeled. We're, we're, we're labeled in so many ways that, man, if, if I, if my child gets labeled, you know, special needs or, uh, special education, man, everybody going to look down on them. We already looked down because of this, 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 and this, and this. And that labeling thing really stops you from several things. Uh, when you don't get the diagnosis, you take away resources, meaning money. I'm talking about actual money to get your child services. There's another layer, especially if you're married. We, we, we didn't know until we knew that there's something called respite care that you, you can find money and services that from groups that can have someone take care of your child for you to have a weekend away. Mm. Without getting past that layer of shame and fear of the label, you'll never get access to those resources. You'll never meet the person who says, hey, my son has that same behavior. Have you heard about this service? That has happened every year of Robin's life since we had a diagnosis that's opened up so many things. For black folks, man, we, we have to be, stop being afraid of a label. And because here's a secret, our European American friends, they use those labels to get their children through college, paid for, co get college paid for. They use it to their advantage and they continue to build generational wealth despite their child having a special need. On top of all that money and stuff, your child is getting the services and their development, their, their cognitive development can pick up and start to begin. And you never know what they're, what they're capable of until you start putting them in therapies and services, speech therapy, 
uh, feeding therapy, occupational therapy, uh, all these different therapies and services, uh, aquatic therapy, equine therapy, music therapy, things that I never knew was possible until we said, okay, we need help. Mm. That, that's that secret. I, especially as a man, I need help. Wow. Work life, because as you are describing Robin, you still have two other boys and you have a wife. Yeah. And then there's Rodney, right? And so, and then there's work and then there's basketball and then there's church and then there's this and then there's that. And so when it comes to work-life family balance, like what does that look like for you? That has changed so dramatically over the years. We already talked about my story, Randall, and workaholism. What I've learned, and I've listened to a lot of people with wisdom, is sometimes there's ne not necessarily a balance, but there's a season. There's a season where, you know, Papa's got to do, when I'm talking to my children, Papa's got to go away for the weekend. Papa's got to, I got to get back at, at 8 p.m. to go do these things. There's seasons now. But what I've, the big adjustment is for my workaholism days was I would think to myself, they have to understand because I have to work. Mm. And the shift now is I get to work to be there for them. And, and I went from got to to get to and having the priorities turned around. The other one of those layers to the onion is everything now for me is interwoven. That's the whole fatherpreneurship. The reason why I created the basketball league with my wife here in Gwinnett County was to give my son an opportunity to play because if we hadn't stepped in, youth basketball would not exist in Duluth at all, not on a competitive level. What I get to do with Fathers Incorporated was a result of serving and, and building relationships and doing this, what I'm called to, one of the assignments I'm called to is turning the hearts of fathers back to children that connected me with Kenneth Braswell and met him at a Hawks game, however many years ago that was. And every time I'm serving fathers, I'm seeing his face and he's seeing my face like, okay, well, I think we got the same kind of passion here. But the, the fatherhood, the fatherpreneurship made me say, everything has to match up with my goals of being a present and engaged father. That doesn't mean you're a perfect father. That doesn't mean you're there every day to pick him up and drop him off. But the vast majority of the time now is I am there. And 30 years, 60 years, 100 years from now, whenever God calls me home, I want what I call the right kind of selfish. So that right kind of selfish causes me, fuels me, and passions me to, to have my children say 30 years from now that their daddy, their papa, was the one that instilled these principles and caused these great memories um, in their life that they that helps them be the best versions of themselves as adults. I want my footprint, my fingerprint, my handprint all through that. That's what I call the right kind of selfish. Yeah. So, you know, you spoke about, you know, that night that we went to the Atlanta Hawks game. And it's so crazy because you and I, we both still have those pictures, right? And I kind of look across the guys that were there and more than half of those guys, like I am still in contact with today. And I didn't know any of you that yeah. night. And so God is really um, special when it comes to creating moments that 
are more significant moments than we realize when we're in the moment, if that makes sense, it right? Makes perfect sense. And so here we are today. Um, you are now on our team and we work side by side and we have taken on this task of trying to figure out how to build the capacity of fathers, particularly here in Metro Atlanta, um, to show up and be available in the lives of their children in the ways that they desire and in the ways that they need. And now we get a chance to every quarter, every three months or so, watch 40 to 50 coming up, maybe even 60, 70 guys walk across the stage and get this certificate that says that I completed something on behalf of my children, right? I invested time of my life to really become a better father in their lives. Talk to me a little bit about what that means to you um, each and every day when you have helped just one dad, just one, like get something that they're seeking that is available to them now that really wasn't available for you and I at times that we needed to be able to pick up the phone and call someone and say, I'm struggling right now as a father and I could use some help. Talk a little bit about that. I wanna say what fuels me, what got me here and why, what we see when they graduate, why it's so rewarding for me is that throughout my life, you know, God has given me directions and sometimes I've listened and sometimes I haven't. And when I haven't listened, tragic calamities have happened in my life and to the life of people that I love, teammates that have passed away, you know, high school classmates that have passed away, that it, I had a message for them and I didn't give it. And the fuel of my father adopted me and the effect he's had on six people, the ripple effect, the, the, the life that I get to live because a man loved me. When I, when I get to serve these men with Fathers Incorporated, knowing that one of my God-given assignments is to turn the hearts of fathers back to children, when I see one father, well, there's been many more than that, but at least one father that says, hey, this is my first time walking across any stage. Mm. And his mother or auntie or children there, tears running down their face and their joy in their face. What that does to recreate the image of what a father is in their mind is lifelong. It's long lasting. So many people in my faith turn away from God, the father, because their earthly father wasn't a good example. And they can't understand the love of God because they don't, they didn't ever receive the love of a man, their father. And so what we're doing for me is kingdom work, is God work. Whether they, you believe or not the same as I do, the principles are still true. When we put a man back in their children's life in a positive way, with tools on how to communicate with them, raise them, communicate with the mother of their children better than they used to communicate. Uh, make good choices, not, not be led by anger or their emotions, but be able to process their emotions, how to be more of a mediator. I know that we're changing the world one father at a time because one father can have from one to 20 children, it does, you know, whatever the number is. And then they, in fact, uh, in effect, are raising those people to be better people in the communities. We, it, I really believe it begins with men 
being present and engaged, being a foundational father for our communities, cities, states, countries in the world to really make the changes it needs to make. So when we think of a number like 20 or 30 or 40, in the scope of the world, that's a small number. But in the, the impact that 20, 30, and 40 men can have on a community, a family, a community, a city, and a state in the world is tremendous. It's immeasurable. I know it makes things better for everybody. That, that is so rewarding. When my family was there for the first time I was able to go to a Fathers, Fathers Incorporated graduation, my wife and children were there. My wife's eyes were so open that she, all the stuff I've been talking about for years, she got to see the men walk across the stage and the families being proud of them. She's like, oh, wow, now I see it. So now this work has not just affected me, it's affected my wife. And now when she goes into spaces where men, people are talking down about men, she has a new perspective and she can share as an advocate for foundational fatherhood mm-hmm. and men being present and engaged. It's life-changing, me yeah. included. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you speak about family, which is why I've had my family, you know, my family has been trailing me for, you know, the 20 years or close to 20 years that I've been doing this stuff. Um, you talk about the impact on our wives, right? And how they, their perspectives change. Man, think about the impact on our children who are kind of watching this in the backdrop. So when you talk about, you know, when, you know, when we check, when God checks our box, you know, our children won't just be saying that my dad was, you know, you know, either the best dude I ever knew in my life, the most significant man in my life. They're going to say all that stuff, but they're going to say my dad built other men. And they helped other families and they showed me how to be, you know, the man that I should be in my family. That is something I can't wait to see. I can't wait to see the the uh, direct impact that these fathers are going to have on their children when their children open up the photo album, if they're going to have photo albums, right? 20 years from now, maybe it's this Google account or whatever, and they see this photo of my dad at this graduation with me in his lap sleep while he's receiving his certificate of this fatherhood program. Man, I can't wait to hear, you know, what children say when they see those pictures. Rodney, you also have a book. Talk a little bit about your book. So the book I I co-wrote with my best friend, you know, I gotta make sure you hear, hear the name of it properly. It's called What Your Name Is, What Not to Name Your Child. (laughs) <laughs> this was back in like 2010, 2011. And uh, my best friend, Sean Osley and I, we had started a list of the craziest legal names we had come across. And the list went from one page to two pages to three pages over the years. And he was already self-publishing books. He said, let's just write a book. And so we split up the chapters and we just put some funny commentary to the craziest names we ever, we ever saw. And uh, I ended up on CNN talking about what not to name your child, this is 2011. And it's such a, it's such a necessary, even though a humorous conversation, it's a humorous conversation that leads to, uh, deals with serious issues. So like name discrimination is a real thing. You know, there was a uh, resume or a study by the University of Chicago years ago, 2008-ish, about the responses from hiring managers to names, if they're more ethnic sounding, uh, they would take the same person or imaginary person or a resume, 
put a more Eurocentric name on it and a ethnic name on it, send it to the same jobs. All the ethnic names, about 99% of those got rejected. All the Eurocentric names got, you know, received well. Mm -hmm. So that, that's a real thing. So we use a humorous approach to talk about some serious things and you have a laugh at the same time. But hopefully, you know, our, our job in that was to get people thinking more about what you name your child because when they become an adult, what kind of life will they have? Will this help them or hinder them? And even though I know several people with, you know, ethnic names named after alcoholic drinks, there's two women that I know with those names that are extremely successful in their field of, you know, careers. But a lot of people don't get the opportunities just because of names. So they got to go by an initial, they got to change their name up if that's what they want to do in life in the corporate world, or they start their own business, one of the two. But yeah. it really does hinder the children sometimes when you pick your own unique spelling, you know, like uh, one of the names, there's twins in there called, most people would say orange jello, lemon jello, but they're pronounced orangelo and lemangelo. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of that all through the book. Yeah. You know, it's crazy you talk about names and I'm 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 you know, it's one of my pet peeves and and that is, you know, the the pronunciation of people's names, right? And making sure that you call them there's a um I'm a Trekkie as well, so I love Enterprise is my favorite Trek series. But there's an episode in the beginning of the series where the character Data um was had met the new um, medical officer on the ship and she kept calling him data yeah. and she kept saying data data she kept calling him data and he said my name is data now he's an android right he's not a human he was like my name is data and her response to that was what's the difference and his answer is something that has always floored me, is always something that I keep in the back of my mind when I think about ensuring that you pronounce people's names right. And his response was, one is my name, the other one isn't. And I was like, whoa, yeah. And as such, one has meaning, intentional meaning, and the other one doesn't. Like, so when we name, you know, I think, but my youngest daughter was the one that I kind of, you know, was really adamant about with her because she had such a unique, you know, to your point, African-centric name in Zinka. I would always say to her, never allow anybody to shorten your name. Mm -hmm. um, your name is in Zinka and Zinka has power. Um, it's cute to call you Zinka. It's even cute to call you Z, but that's not your name. And those names don't have power but Nzinga does have power. And I think every young lady, every woman that I've met with the name Nzinga, like carries this aura of power around them. For some odd reason, that name just is, is, is interesting in that sense. And so I love that about the names. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, cause we do. Uh, and the other skit, the one that um, Keel and uh, Pe uh, 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 yeah, Kim what's his name did when yeah. he was calling. <laughs> <laughs> when he kept messing up the people's name, A-A-Ron. Yeah. Um, I love that a -Ron in the room. Yeah, those things. So that's something humorous. Tell people how they can get the book. Tell people how they can get in touch with you. Tell them how they can follow your work, all that good stuff. 
You can get the book, What Your Name Is, What Not to Name Your Child, and What Your Name Is, Volume T-O-O, on Amazon right now. And if you want to follow me on social media, I'm at, at Fatherpreneur, Twitter, Instagram, uh, and RodneyKellum.com is the website, which is under construction, but it's, it'll be up by the time you watch. All right. Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate you, man. It is such an honor to work in um, Soldier in this field um, beside you. I know that we're going to have a tremendous impact. We're going to change the tone of this town. I really, really believe that. Um, when people realize what we have done, what we're doing, and what we're going to do, we are going to set ourselves apart um, from many folks um, in this town of Atlanta. Let me call them out, right? And the men that we're serving and the families and children and communities that they impact will tell volumes of stories um, as to how you do this work and how you transform communities. And I want to thank each and every last one of you for checking in to I Am Dad podcast. Again, I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell, and my guest today, Rodney Kellum, uh, who is a, a renaissance man in all kinds of things. And so um, hear his story and um, be touched by his story. And so you know how I like to leave you. Always be kind to others as you're kind to yourself, or you might find yourself by yourself. Always shoot high for your goals, because even if you miss, you'll be amongst the stars. And that's my good friend and mentor, Art Mitchell, and my friend, John Harris, used to always say to me, it's nice to be important, but it's much more important to be nice. And so until next Sunday, peace out. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad Podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time. I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period. <laughs>